Good morning, everybody. Great to see you and more and more of you. Seems a bit of an odd question maybe to start with, but what are you most afraid of? Oh, I don't mean like deep emotional fears. I mean, you know, things like spiders and stuff like that. Spiders and snakes. I read a a study that Chapman University did, or a survey, not too long ago, on what Americans fear most. And I was sort of surprised when I learned that 7% of Americans most fear clowns. Clowns. Now, I'm not surprised by that because my daughters growing up were terrified of clowns. You know, at, at parties or whatever, we'd go to the circus. It's like, let's go see the clown. No, let's don't go see the clown. So anyway, 7% fear clowns. 8% fear darkness. And I actually know a grown man who is afraid of the dark. And uh, he's a good friend of mine. And whenever we're together, I love to turn out the lights just for the fun. <laughs> we have a lot of fun together. I mean, I have, I have a lot of fun <laughs> when we're together. 14% have a fear of flying. 17% fear claustrophobia, which I can understand. 18% fear blood or needles, you know, like being stuck. I don't really have a problem with that so much if they, unless they don't get it the first three or four times. I went to a guy not long ago that was doing labs on me. It's like, I wanted to name the guy Dracula. It's like, dude, didn't you practice at this? Well, let's try the other arm. How about the leg? Well, here's my jugular vein. Go for that. I guarantee you there's blood in there. Um, 26, no, let's see, wait, where are we? Um, it's 19% fear drowning, most. So, I mean, who doesn't fear drowning? But I guess this is, like, this is their most fear. 22% fear bugs, snakes, or other animals, which would, of course, in course include mice and stuff like that. 24% fear heights. 26%, and this was the greatest one, fear public speaking. <laughs> which is kind of interesting. They, I, I looked a, a little bit deeper on that, and uh, why I think people fear public speaking, or at least some of the suggestions. You know the common suggestion that people usually are given to, you said it, picture them what? Naked. Well, I've heard naked as well as uh, in your underwear, but it's like, you know, neither one, I do a lot of public speaking, neither one, I'll tell you, neither one helps. In fact, in this class, it would not help at all. Uh, well, I'll tell you, at our, at our house, we are not big fans of lizards. Lizards also rank, I mean, that sort of fits with animals, but lizards, and we're not talking the little cute green ones. We're talking like the brown, quasi-iguana-sized lizards that crawl on your house and then just kind of sort of lay there sunning themselves until your wife walks by and screams, Wayne, there's a lizard. Well, one of these big lizards crawled in our garage like last week. And I thought, well, I, I thought it's futile to try to go in there and find him because, you know, they can squeeze in small places and there's all sorts of stuff in the garage. So I thought, well, he'll come out eventually when he gets hungry. Like two days ago, 
I walk in the garage, and there he is. You know, it's like one of those moments where you're there right face to face. (laughs) There's this big lizard looking at me. And you know how lizards look? You know, they look at you kind of like that. (laughs) And so I'm looking at this lizard, and he's looking at me. And and I'm looking around. It's like, what can I get without moving to kill this lizard? And it didn't work out that I actually got him that time, but I did see where he scampered. And so I got one of those mouse glue blocks, you know. (laughs) Total success. Yesterday, well, how do you deal with lizards, brother? Yesterday... What do you do, capture them with the hand? Okay, next time an iguana crawls in your garage, you show me what to do, all right? All right. So anyway, the glue block thing worked. And glue blocks are actually kind of fun because it doesn't kill them. And so they're, they're just stuck there. And so you walk in, and you can like get up real close to them, and they can't go anywhere. They're just looking at you. So you just kind of pick them up, glue block and all, and toss them in the garbage. I have permission also to shoot them. So you tell me which is better, to die slowly in the trash can or immediately. Maybe I should just move on. (laughs) This illustration isn't going the way I intended. but. But what do you do when fear creeps in? What do you do when fear creeps into your life? Uh, what, What do you grab to solve that problem? Sometimes circumstances are going to be absolutely beyond your control, and it's not as simple as heights or lizards or flying or fear of the dark. It goes so much deeper when the Lord allows something in your life that uh, brings the fear out of your, in, your, in your heart. Let's look together at Second Chronicles chapter 20. Second Chronicles 20. As we continue looking at some of the kings in the Old Testament, we are today looking at a man named Jehoshaphat. These, these names, <clears throat> I mean, Jehoshaphat, that almost sounds like a, that's what we say, you know, it's like, great jumping Jehoshaphat. It's almost like something from the Beverly Hillbillies <laughs> rather than something that belongs in the Bible. It's a weird name, and because it's a weird name, we really struggle connecting to these kings. But... Um, you know, we could, we could call him something else. We could call him Jake, and we maybe could uh, connect better. But Jehoshaphat, he was the son of Asa, whom we looked at last week. So we're just next guy right in line. Jehoshaphat, king of Jerusalem, one of the few godly kings that reigned after David. There's only about eight of them. And, but he faced a fear, an unexpected fear, and what he did with that fear is a wonderful model. So, Second Chronicles 20, look right in verse 1. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Minuites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea out of Aram. And behold, they are, at, or they are in Hazazan Tamar, that is, in Gedi. I... Uh, I love that, uh, just the honesty here, 
They're out to get you. <laughs> and these, there's three nations, Moab, uh, the sons of Moab, the sons of Ammon, and the Meunites. It's sort of a weird name. If you've got a marginal reading there, uh, it might, uh, another reading is Edom, because these uh, Minuite guys are from Edom, sort of a subset of the uh, Edomites. But as we heard from the previous uh, hour, the Moabites were bona fide enemies, and the Ammonites and the Edomites weren't all that friendly either. They were all sort of distant relatives of Israel, and so it was really a no-no that they'd be invading, as we'll see. Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat hears that they're coming from beyond the sea, meaning the Dead Sea, and they, that they are already at En Gedi, which means they now have crossed the Dead Sea area, and they are getting close. In fact, if you're familiar with the geography, where Jehoshaphat was there in Jerusalem, um, they were only about 15 hours away at En Gedi. So to travel to En Gedi only takes about 15 hours. So imagine you get the news that you got 15 hours to deal with this invading army from three nations, this horde that is coming against you, and you've just got enough time to do nothing. Fifteen hours is not enough time to, to do anything. And so look what Jehoshaphat does. Verse 3, Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. Once again, you love the honesty. Jehoshaphat was afraid. It's great that we read that because we tend to read the Bible, especially these godly kings, sort of through stained glass glasses. And we don't see them as real people. We see them as otherworldly. He's got a weird name. He's a king. He speaks Hebrew. No, he was afraid. Something came into his life that turned on the panic button, and Jehoshaphat was afraid, and we're told he turned his attention to seek the Lord. Or literally, the text says he set his face to seek the Lord. Great combination. But notice he didn't do it alone. He got the whole nation involved. This wasn't just his problem, and it wasn't just a solution that he was going to solve. He turned his attention to seek the Lord personally, but he also proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. So we got time just to do this, to basically get out the news, to have everybody come, and all Judah gathered together, we're told here, to seek help from the Lord. And notice three times we're told Jehoshaphat turned his attention to seek the Lord. Then verse 4, Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord three times. So the emphasis in their response to this fear was to seek God, to turn to God. And look how they did it. Verse 5. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem, in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven, in the heavens? And are you not ruler over all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in your hand, so that no one can stand against you. 
Did you not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend, forever? They have lived in it and have built you a sanctuary there for your name, saying, Should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we will stand before this house and before you, for your name is in this house, and cry to you in our distress, and you will hear and deliver us. What a great prayer. And look at the details of it. Jehoshaphat wasn't just shooting from the hip. He wasn't just making this up. He wasn't just reading from some prayer book or some devotional that he bought down the street at Mardell's. This was coming from his heart, and you can tell that his heart was full of Scripture. His heart was full of God's Word. It's very thoughtful. First of all, he and all Judah, thousands and thousands of people, are standing in the temple, and Jehoshaphat appeals to God, first of all, on the basis of his sovereignty, then his power, then his past acts, his covenant with Abraham, and God's promise to dwell in Jerusalem. But that's not all. Keep your finger here, if you would, and turn back a few chapters to chapter 6. Jehoshaphat mentions that a temple was built, and in chapter 6, we read the dedication of the temple, and Jehoshaphat is basically quoting, or maybe better paraphrasing, what Solomon prayed in that same temple a hundred years earlier. In chapter 6, look down at verse 28. This is Solomon's big, long prayer of dedication of the temple. And he says this in verse 28 and following. If there is a famine in the land, if there is pestilence, if there is blight or mildew, if there is locust or grasshopper, if their enemies besiege them in the land of their cities, whatever plague or whatever sickness there is, whatever prayer or supplication is made by any man or by all your people, each knowing his own affliction and his own pain and spreading his hands toward this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and forgive and render to each according to, to all his ways, whose heart you know, for you alone know the hearts of the sons of men, that they may fear you to walk in your ways as long as they live in the land which you have given to our fathers. So Solomon, in dedicating the temple that Jehoshaphat is standing in, says, if enemies invade and the people pray, then, Lord, you answer, and particularly if they pray with their hands toward this house. And it's not so much that the house is important, but we know that the Ark of the Covenant, also known as the presence of God, is there in the temple. So they're praying to God, to the very presence of God. So turning back to chapter 20, this is exactly what Jehoshaphat is praying when he begins there in verse 9. In fact, I don't know if you've got it in your version, but my verse 9 has it in quotes because he is basically quoting or paraphrasing Solomon's great prayer back in Second Chronicles chapter 6. So let's continue. Verse 10, the prayer goes on. Now behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you did not let Israel invade, when they came out of the land of Egypt, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them, See how they are rewarding us by coming to drive us out from your possession, which you have given us as an inheritance? O oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who were coming against us, nor do we know what to do 
but our eyes are on you. All Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. Beautiful picture. Not only of everybody coming together. It's like we're not hiding this from the kids. We're not hiding this from the women. Everyone comes together. Everyone is praying. And you've got Jehoshaphat in great humility praying before everybody. And his words are magnificent there in verse 20. I'm sorry, verse uh, 12. He says, will you not judge them? We're powerless before this great multitude. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. That's a great response to fear, isn't it? When we are absolutely powerless. Not only that, we don't even know what to pray. Sort of sounds like Romans, doesn't it? Romans 8, where it says that when we don't even know what to pray, the Holy Spirit intercedes for us according to the will of God. It's okay. If you don't know what to pray, just pray something. Just say, Lord, I don't know what to pray, but I'm praying and I'm trusting. Our eyes are on you. What a great place to be. And yet, it's real easy to read this as we sit here in our comfortable classroom with our half-eaten donut and our cup of coffee. It's real hard to pray this when you've got something like Jehoshaphat was facing. Very hard. We have no power, but our eyes are on you. Well, as you can imagine, there is a great timeless principle to get from this. When fear creeps in, seek help from God according to the scriptures. When fear creeps in, seek help from God according to the scriptures. Notice he didn't just pray willy-nilly and pray from his emotions, but he allowed his, the situation and his emotions to well up in truth. And he got that truth from scripture, God's power, God's sovereignty, Solomon's prayer. This is all rooted in the word of God. It's not rooted just in a fearful heart that Jehoshaphat had. I don't know if you've seen that Bill Murray movie, Groundhog Day. <laughs> it's always hard to recommend a movie or to, say, to suggest a movie or use a movie as an illustration because it sort of implies a carte blanche approval of the whole thing, which I don't. So if you've seen it, great. If you haven't seen it, I'm not recommending you see it. So we'll just leave it there. But there is a part in the movie, you know the premise of the movie, is that Bill Murray is this weather reporter. He goes to report on Groundhog Day. He's done it so many times already. He doesn't really want to do it. He feels like it's below him. And turns out the next day he wakes up and it's the same day again. And he keeps living the same day, Groundhog Day, over and over and over and over. And the implication is that it's been thousands and thousands of these Groundhog Days. And he goes through all sorts of, you know, emotions. First of all, he can't believe it. Second, he begins to take advantage of it. And he begins to essentially uh, live a life of debauchery. And then he realizes, you know what? This is an opportunity for me to do good. And so he goes through all these different emotions. But one scene that is so telling, I think, <clears throat> is where he is uh, in front of the camera and he's talking about Groundhog Day. And he says, here we are, Groundhog Day, you know, again and again and again. And then he goes, blah, 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 blah. And he's talking to the camera. It's like, well, that's not very professional. But if you've done this over and over and your really heart's really not in it, then it's just blah, blah, blah. 
Our prayers can be like that. We can come before God going through the motions, thinking we're doing what he wants us to do, when the reality is it's just blah, blah, blah. We're just blah, blahing our way through prayer. Sometimes it takes, it takes a fearful situation to strip away all the veneer of our spiritual life and to get down to brass tacks with God. And this is where Jehoshaphat was. There was no blah, blah, blah in his prayer. It was, Lord, we don't know what to do, and we are looking to you. When fear creeps in, seek help from God according to the scriptures. I read about um, an article or a story that H.G. Wells told one time to, I think it was the New Yorker or somebody, some. Of course, it was a long time ago. H.G. Wells was no friend of the church, but he loved to tell the story about this minister who always would encourage people when, when uh, people would come to him with problems. This minister would say, well, have you prayed about it? And if he said it in a really slow, you know, deep voice, then it tended to help the people. Well, the minister himself had no problems till one day his life fell apart, and he found himself overwhelmed. And so one Saturday night before the Sunday services, Saturday night this minister enters his church, goes to the front, kneels on the rug, and begins to pray. And the minister says, Oh, God. And then suddenly there was a voice. It was crisp, it was businesslike, and the voice said, Well, what is it? The next day, the congregation came into Sunday services, and they found the minister face down, spread eagle. They flipped him over, and he had horror etched on his face. And H.G. Wells was basically saying that there are people who talk a lot about God, but who would be scared to death if they actually saw him. You see, Jehoshaphat didn't have to blow dust off the Bible to find a verse that somehow applied to that situation. He didn't just go to church on Christmas and Easter. He had a regular relationship with God so that when problems come, come along, it was just came right, it was right in the flow of his normal daily walk with God. And if you are walking with God, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You can walk with God day in and day out so that when something comes along, that just comes right in line with what you're already doing in your walk with God. You don't have to find God. He's with you. He's with you every day. And when problems come along, you just, you just bring the Lord right into that, that situation, right into the flow of your relationship. This is what Jehoshaphat did. The time to get to know God is daily, not during the time of fear. Notice several things Jehoshaphat did. First of all, he sought the Lord personally. He also did it with others. And he prayed God's promises found in the Scriptures. Barna Research Group said that 82% of regular Bible readers describe themselves as at peace compared to 58% of those who said they never read the Bible. I'm actually surprised that 58% would even describe themselves at peace. I remember talking with a man some years ago whose daughter was dying of brain tumors. She had had uh, multiple surgeries and chemo. She'd lost the use of one arm. She only had six months to live. And as I spoke to this father, 
of course, very tearful. He told me that he had been praying the verse from Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And after he finished quoting that verse, he said, you know what? This verse works. This is a father who was losing his daughter. And he said, I have perfect peace because I am trusting in God. You really do have peace when you turn it over to him. This isn't easy, is it? I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that, not necessarily losing a, a child or a family member, but maybe, maybe like that. I've been in those situations on multiple fronts, and, and I'm telling you, it's, it is hard if you don't have a walk with God. My uh, dad told me a story when he, he used to live in Denton, and years ago, there was a circus that uh, would always come to Denton. In fact, I think it actually still comes there. There is a circus that comes every year or so. It's uh, been a long time since we've been. But it's right by an area that I often drive. And so I, I often see it, and I often think of this story. That he said that when he was a little boy, he went to this circus, and, you know, the clowns were doing this, you know, those fearful clowns. And then the elephants were, you know, doing their thing. And in the middle of the elephant act, one elephant just kind of fell over and just laid there. And people were running around trying to figure out what it was, and then, then all of a sudden they turned the lights down on that ring. And over on this ring, hey, let's look at something else. While well, they figured out what to do with this dead elephant. The elephant died right in the middle of the act. And I think they ended up bringing something in and, like, dragging it off to get it off the middle of center stage. It's not really what Daddy wants that elephant doing. So, anyway, the story gets worse. The next morning, the circus packed up and left, and left the dead elephant right there on the grounds. What do you do with a dead elephant? I have never forgotten that story, not so much because it's just weird, like, what do you do with a dead elephant? But when you think about that in our lives, we've all got dead elephants in our lives. They're too big to move, aren't they? And if you don't do something fast, you got to do something fast with that dead elephant. But you can't do it by yourself. Imagine trying to move an elephant by yourself. It's way too big, way too big. You've got to have help. Jehoshaphat knew this, and he comes to God. We are powerless. We are powerless without you. But you can't, you can't do it if you try to have control over the situation. Um, when I was a kid, I guess about seven, eight years old, my family went to what was then called Lake Dallas. Today it's called Lake Louisville. But back when it was Lake Dallas, we were pushing our boat off the boat ramp, and, of course, I wanted to help, you know, as a seven-year-old. So I'm on the side of the boat, and I'm pushing the boat out, and everyone else is pushing the boat out. Well, you know what happens? Eventually, there's no ground beneath your feet. And so here I am, this, you know, sweet little seven-year-old boy, hanging on to the side of the boat, 
everyone else is gone, and I'm there on the side of the boat. My granddad's backing out, you know, now with the motor running. And so I screamed, you know, for granddad to come and help me. And he came over and looked, looked at me, and he reached down and grabbed my arms, but I didn't want to let go of that boat. He said, let go. And so I can still remember seeing him and having this fearful feeling of, are you kidding? I'm not letting go of this boat. But at the same time, I realized this is not a long-term solution. So I let go, and Granddad just immediately pulled me up, threw me in a chair, threw me a towel, and went back to driving the boat. It was a simple, it was a simple thing to deal with. But I had to let go of the boat. When we are in situations like this, we've got to let go and give control to the Lord, even though we don't know how he's going to take care of it. Prayer is not just supplication. It's not just asking God. It is trusting God. It is surrendering to God. It is letting go and allowing the Lord to be God. It's trusting the one who is in control. A lot of us have no problem asking God for help. A lot of us have a lot of trouble letting go of the boat. We won't trust the Lord the way we pray. It's like trying to move a dead elephant all by yourself. It can't work. Prayer is not only surrender, it is trust. Jehoshaphat said, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. So look what happens immediately. Verse 14, then in the midst of the assembly, the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Mataniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he said, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not, be, uh, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. <laughs> That's great to have God on your side. By the way, here's how they're going to come. Verse 17, you need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves, stand, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Wow, wouldn't it be great if all of our prayers were answered that fast? Well, in this case, it was. In this case, it was, wasn't it? magnificent. Immediately, the Spirit of God responds to their request for this prophet, gives the response, and basically says, it's as good as done. All you've got to do is just tomorrow go watch. What a great reply. You mean we don't even have to fight? All we got to do is go watch? Great. That's the kind of battle I want to be in. Just go watch. Do not be afraid. In fact, that's repeated there twice. Be not afraid. Don't, don't fear. Just trust and watch God act. Magnificent. When you surrender to the Lord, you are putting the battle in God's hands. It's God's battle. It's God's battle. Their problem was fear. God said, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed because of this great multitude. 
It's not your battle, it's God's battle. Paul said a similar thing in the New Testament. He said, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against spiritual forces of wickedness. Boy, that's easy to forget, isn't it? Because the jerk that cuts me off on the freeway is flesh and blood. I want to deal with it in a flesh and blood way, especially the flesh. But our battle is not against flesh and blood. It is against Satan and his imps. What does WWJD mean? WWJD. What would Jesus do, right? That's nice, but there's a better question, I think, than that. I would say WDJD. What did Jesus do? When we ask what would Jesus do, we're making ourselves the ones that evaluate what I should do based on what we think Jesus would do. No, the Word tells us what Jesus did. There's a lot of stuff Jesus did. So when we're in a situation, we need to ask ourselves, what did Jesus do? That's what he would do. What did he do? What did he do? We read the Word of God. What does the Word say I should do in this instance? Not what do I think I should do. I uh, was handed this just before class, and I think it uh, is relevant at this moment. Knowledge is knowing that a tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing that a tomato does not belong in a fruit salad. (laughs) Philosophy is considering whether a Bloody Mary is a fruit smoothie. We can think around anything, can't we? What did Jesus do? What does the Word say? What is recorded in the Scriptures? What did Jehoshaphat do? He did it well. He came to God in dependence. Surrender is the only path to peace. So, verse 18, look at what Jehoshaphat did. Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground, And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. The Levites from the sons of the Kohathites and of the sons of the Korites stood up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. Well, second principle from our text is that the proper response to the victory God promises is praise, even before the victory comes. The proper response to the victory that God promises is praise, even before the victory comes. We can praise God even before we see the victory, because we know, as Paul says, that we are more, we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus. I've got a friend who videotapes basketball games for his son, who is a missionary, who doesn't have television where he is. But he does have, you know, obviously the Internet from time to time, so he can see who won, but he just can't watch the games until the father sends the videotapes. So it's sort of an interesting situation. Imagine knowing who wins the Super Bowl before you watch the Super Bowl. It becomes a different intrigue. The question isn't who wins, but how did they win? It's the same thing with us. God has promised us victory already. The curious thing is, how is he going to pull it off? Don't you know that was running through Jehoshaphat's mind? We're promised victory. Great. 
how in the world is he going to do this? These hordes coming out against us. Well, look how he did it. Verse 20. They rose early in the morning and went out to the wilderness of Tekoa. This is like halfway between Jerusalem and um, Gedi. And when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, Listen to me, O Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. When he had consulted with the people, he appointed those who sang to the Lord and who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and said, Give thanks to the Lord, for his loving kindness is everlasting. When they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah, so they were routed. For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. When Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, there were corpses lying on the ground, and no one had escaped. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found much among them, including goods, garments, valuable things, which they took for themselves more than they could carry. And they were three days taking the spoil because there was so much. Then on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they, played, they blessed the Lord. Therefore, they have named that place the valley of Barakah. That means blessing until today. Every man of Judah and Jerusalem returned with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy, for the Lord had made them to rejoice over their enemies. They came to Jerusalem with harps, lyres, trumpets, to the house of the Lord. And the dread of God was on all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. So the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God gave him rest on all sides. Jehoshaphat said, put your trust in the Lord's promise. Let go of the boat. Trust in his prophets, which means trust in the word of God, and you will succeed. So, if there's something you want to do when you're afraid, praise the Lord. That's what they did. Praise the Lord. Surrender to God. Because if you can't do anything about it, you, you can't do anything about it. Just trust the Lord. Praise God for his everlasting mercies. And notice, it's interesting that it says in verse 22, when they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Moab, Ammon, and Mount Seir. It was when they began praising God that they got victory. Probably not a coincidence. Plato once wrote, We can easily forgive a child who is afraid of the dark, the real tragedy of life is when men are afraid of the light. I know that some of you have brought fears with you this morning. Probably family related, maybe financially related, maybe health. We've all got them. We've all got those elephants that are too hard to drag off. We've all got those moments where we are terrified of letting go of the boat because so far it's kept us from going under but God says let go let go and trust me let me hold you let me take you out of that situation the battle is the Lord's the battle is the Lord's 
And that's a great thing to repeat, even in prayer, as you are dealing with whatever elephant is that you need dragged off. The battle's the Lord's. It's not yours. It is his. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the spiritual forces of wickedness. And if that's the truth, we have to have God. And it's the only path to victory. So let's leave Second Chronicles for now, and or for today, and flip to Romans real quick. Romans, that great chapter 8. And let's end looking at the victory that is not necessarily related to the Old Testament saints, but definitely is related to us. Romans chapter 8. From the perspective of the New Testament, we as Christians can learn from Jehoshaphat the proper response for fear is praying to God. And again, what did Jesus do when he was in this situation? He prayed, just like Jehoshaphat did. He surrendered, just like Jehoshaphat did. When Christ was in Gethsemane, Christ said, Father, may this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus let go of the boat, and the Father showed up. Romans chapter 8, look down at verse 31. ah, The whole thing's great. Back up two more verses, if you would. three, Three verses. Start at verse 28. 28 always needs a context. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We all know that verse. We've all quoted that verse. That verse is fantastic. But do you know what the good is that God plans? Here's the good. Verse 29. For, in other words, I'm explaining, those whom he foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. So the good that God intends to all things in our lives is that we be conformed to Christ, to the image of Christ. We tend to define the good in our lives like we want to. God defines it as becoming conformed to the image of his son so that he would be, Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30. Now notice the details of this. And these, meaning the brethren, whom he predestined, he also called. And these, whom he called, he also justified. And these, whom he justified, he also glorified. Look at the the progression there. From predestination to glorification, it's all God. It's all God. God predestined, God called us, and we accepted Christ and then we are justified, and those who are justified are glorified. It's as good as done. Notice, glorified, that's past tense. It's as good as done. Everything else truly is past tense for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, but glorified is as good as past tense. It's as good as done because he says these, 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 these. It's, it's the same people all throughout the process. Okay, now verse 31. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? You see that wonderful question in context? If God is for us, if God has predestined us, and all this process is going along to where ultimately we're going to be glorified, who can be against us? Nobody. Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also, along with him, freely give us all things? 
Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or dead elephants? Just seeing if you're awake because it fits in there. Verse 36, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. If we were to look at that quote back in Psalm 44, it refers to the persecution that he just mentioned in verse 35, persecution. But verse 36, the Psalm 44 comes from a context of those who are faithfully struggling and wondering and and perplexed about it. Where he says, uh, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We're perplexed at it. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, depth, any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What wonderful questions. What wonderful answers. Will he not give us all these things? Absolutely. Who will separate us from our Savior? No one. These, this is the promise that we can go ahead and praise God for. Because as we said, that second principle, the proper response to the victory God promises is praise even before we see the victory. Even before we see it. All of what we just read in Romans 8 is as true, is true of you and is true of me, even though right now we're like sheep that are slaughtered. We're considered as sheep to be slaughtered. We're, put, we're being put to death all day long. We're perplexed at it. But we have confidence, in spite of our perplexity, that we are not going to be abandoned by Christ. So we could toss one more principle here at the end, and it's simply that Christ's death and resurrection have secured victory for the believer even before the victory is seen. We got victory even before the victory is seen. That's what Jehoshaphat faced. God told him, you're going to win. All you got to do is go watch. Christ says the same thing to you and me. You're going to win. You just The curious part now is watch how it happens. You know the end of the game. Just watch the videotape. That videotape's hard to live, but we, uh, we trust God with it. We let go of the boat, and we trust him, just like Jehoshaphat. Let's pray. Father, we need models of lives lived well. And honestly, we can look at other parts of Jehoshaphat's reign that aren't so model, but we're grateful for this chapter that does show a time when he did it well where he faced something that was beyond him and he trusted you and you came through Father we want those same things in our lives we would love for you to come through as we define it in the situation that we're living in sometimes if we can just be honest with you Lord it's hard 
that you don't come through faster, that we've got days, weeks, sometimes years of dragging this cross that, that uh, Christ requires of us, and it's hard. But we come to you on a daily basis with Bibles open, hearts open, honest before you, praising you, even before the victory, because we know that ultimately, ultimately, where we're headed is resurrection and a victory that is so far beyond the struggles of this life. So, Lord, thank you for this time in the scriptures today that gives us reminders that we need, the encouragement that we need, that the end is not the end, or what we see today is not the end. We're looking forward to a future, a future that it is as certain or even more certain than our next breath. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. That was a blessing. I hope you all have a blessed week, and don't forget your composition notebooks so we can finish that up. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.